keep that um, musical meditation in mind as we begin to try to hear the story, not only of Independence Day, but of Interdependence Day. How does that song of the ancient Mother Earth invite us to hear a different story of respect for the interdependent web of all existence, as our UU Seventh Principle puts it? To say a little more, let me share my screen with you to show some slides. There's an old joke in UU circles that if there's one St. John that the most, that the greatest number of UUs revere, it's St. John Lennon. Seriously, it's a whole thing far beyond um, just UUs. There are St. John Lennon votive candles, St. John Lennon stained glass windows, St. John Lennon prayer cards, and more. Along these lines, John Lennon's song, Imagine, has often been particularly beloved. And as I've been preparing this sermon on immigration justice, one line from that song has kept coming to mind. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. It's a beautiful sentiment. But is it really true that imagining no countries is easy to do? Given how long we've been trying to pass comprehensive immigration reform in this country, it seems like imagining no countries can sadly be quite difficult. And whenever I reflect on the long struggle for immigration justice in this country, I'm similarly reminded of Dr. Daisy Machado. She was one of my favorite professors in seminary. She taught me history from a Latina feminist perspective. And I will never forget her asking us to imagine the earth as we've seen it in pictures taken from space, a breathtakingly beautiful blue-green marble on which we find ourselves floating through the inky blackness of space. And then she invited us to also picture a globe or almost any map you've ever seen. What's the difference? Maps and globes, they almost always have these human-imposed, socially constructed lines dividing up the natural world of our planet, the ancient mother we heard sung about earlier, with colors and labels reflecting which human political groups have staked out ownership claims. So with that juxtaposition in mind of Earth and space and Earth as we um, depict it on maps, what she said next has resonated with me deeply. It stuck with me decades later after I first heard her say it. She said, borders are wounds. Borders are wounds. There's a lot of hard truth in that statement. Because from a cosmic perspective, it's so clear that all living beings on this planet are part of one interdependent whole. But for various historically contingent reasons, we've carved out borders. And from a certain point of view, each of those borders is a wound, an injury, a tear, a cut, a trauma that we have either inflicted on ourselves or that has been inflicted on us or that we've inflicted on others. Dr. Machado's view of borders as wounds arises particularly out of her experience as a Latina feminist historian living precisely in Texas. To study the history of the land currently known as Texas is to watch borders shift back and forth over the same lands and homes again and again. 
First, there were indigenous inhabitants who unexpectedly found themselves declared part of the kingdom of New Spain, followed by long periods of significant political instability. Texas even declared itself independent for a few years at one point, over only to eventually be annexed by the United States as our 28th state. Meanwhile, all along, many families were simply trying to live their lives, even as border wounds kept getting carved out above them, below them, around them, and sometimes through them. And if we zoom out, we can see similar stories of division playing out around the world today. Tunisia has built a wall of sandbanks and water-filled trenches along its border with Libya. India and Myanmar have fenced their borders with Bangladesh. Israel has enclosed itself with razor wire, touch sensors, infrared cameras, and motion detectors. Hungary's fence along its borders with Croatia delivers electric shocks. Austria has built a a fence along its border with Slovenia. Britain plans another one along the channel, separating it from France. Norway has fortified its border with Russia, and here in the U.S., we have all heard endless amounts in recent years about the much ballyhooed wall on our southern border. So as I invite us to reflect on immigration justice this morning, please be assured I am very much aware of how fear-mongering around immigration has been and is being used in this country in cynical, bad-faith ways to stoke xenophobic, nativist resentment for political gains. Indeed, here in Frederick County, many of us at UUCF have been involved in the struggle to end the 287G program that allows a highly problematic partnership between our county sheriff's office and ICE, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. For all these reasons and more, I can understand how it came to be that Vice President Kamala Harris used her first foreign trip as VP to make a speech in Guatemala regarding undocumented immigrants to the U.S. that boiled down to three words, do not come. On the one hand, I do not envy the position that Vice President Harris is in. I would not want her job. It's very hard. On the other hand, from the perspective of immigration justice, this news story, it's, it's just really been sitting with me and forcing me to ask, is that really the best the United States of America can do in regard to immigration? Now, don't get me wrong. I realize this is July 4th, America's Independence Day, and there are many ways in which I am grateful to be a U.S. citizen but there is also a reason on this Independence Day that I am inviting we, the people, to widen the circle of who we include as we. I'm inviting us to keep in mind the other side of the equation, that having won our independence, what will we use our freedom for? Part of growing up is definitely casting off what's holding us back, what we don't believe in, but to remain in that place forever, of only declaring what we're free from is to enter an arrested development of eternal adolescence. An equally important part of growing up is freely choosing interdependence. What will you connect with? What community will you choose to be part of? Declaring not only what you're against, but what and whom are you for? Many of you have heard me say that the stories we tell matter. Along those lines, we can ask what stories are holding us back and what stories might call us forward. So in that spirit, I invite you to notice 
how it feels in your heart. How does it feel in your mind, in your body, when you consider our country's current three-word story to would-be immigrants? Do not come. From a certain point of view, maybe it feels strong, tough, protectionist. But from another point of view, can you also feel how it might seem really tight, constricted, closed off, fearful, isolationist, alone? Is this story of independence the best story we can tell? Is it calling us forward or are there ways in which it's holding us back? Here's another story to consider, an excerpt of a sonnet penned by Emma Lazarus emblazoned on the Statue of Liberty in the New York Harbor, specifically to welcome immigrants to our land. When you hear these words, what do you notice in your heart, your mind, your body? Her name, mother of exiles, from her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. What about this story of inter? dependence. Might it help call us forward? To me, this poem resonates with an inspirational, can-do spirit that makes me proud to be an American. It calls us to the better angels of our nature. It speaks of freely choosing, as JFK said, to do things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It feels open-minded, open-handed, open-hearted, compassionate, connected. It feels like it's calling us forward to what a, toward what our UU6 principle calls the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice. Not just for us, not just for some, but for all. Is that just a pipe dream? Or as with landing a human on the moon, are there realistic steps we might take to actually turn our dreams into deeds. There are two books I've been reading and researching this sermon that uh, can help open our hearts and minds and imaginations to what might be possible in regard to immigration justice. The first is One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger by Matthew Iglesias. The second is Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration by Brian Kaplan, an economist. Iglesias' book throws down the gauntlet right there in the title. Today, there are about 330 million people here in the United States, and he invites us to consider, what if we turned that do not come into what we used to say in South Carolina? What if we turned it into a y'all come? In order to intentionally, and maybe this is too far, but he's trying to open our minds, over time to one billion Americans. And even if one billion sounds ludicrous to you, just stick with me for a second. Consider the thought experiment that's trying to open our imaginations to consider that we're perhaps getting it wrong to be so strict about immigration, given how arguably underpopulated our country is. Importantly, Iglesias is also not saying that we should increase our population just to be nice. 
He strongly believes that we need to significantly increase our rate of immigration if the U.S. is going to remain competitive long term with the growing economic market size of, for instance, China and India, which each have approximately 1.4 billion people. Now, as I've said, I'm ultimately much more interested in our UU goal of world community than I am in competing with China and India. But Iglesias makes some important arguments that are worth considering for the short run. And if we take a breath, step back, and try to rationally evaluate the situation, he's got some points that arguably there's room for lots more people here in the U.S. Let me give you a few points of comparison to the population density of our 48 contiguous U.S. states, excluding Hawaii and Alaska. Even if we were to heed Iglesias' maximalist call and literally triple our population, from 330 million Americans to 1 billion Americans, we would still find ourselves, even at 1 billion Americans, about as dense as France and less than half as dense as Germany here in the lower 48. In Iglesias' words, when you picture a land of 1 billion Americans, don't imagine an endless sea of gleaming skyscrapers or a vast horrendous slum. Imagine France. France is a country that does contain gleaming skyscrapers, and unfortunately, a few slums as well. But it's also the country of the scenic Pyrenees Mountains, iconic vineyards, the rugged coastline of Brittany. Nobody thinks of France as a country suffering from hideous levels of overcrowding, in part because Denmark, Italy, Germany, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands are all denser than France. And none of this means we actually have to get anywhere near 1 billion Americans, but it's challenging us to open our imaginations and consider that this hard stance of do not come may be holding us back from the many real benefits for all that a sane, future-oriented immigration policy could bring. And of course, we need to couple our population growth with something like a Green New Deal so that our work for immigration justice works in tandem with our struggle for climate justice. To consider the argument the other way around, many places in America are arguably underpopulated. To name only some of the most prominent examples from recent decades, Detroit has declined 1.85 million people to around 380,000. St. Louis has lost 65% of its 856,000 residents that it had in the, in the mid-20th century. Philadelphia has lost 25% of its peak population. Cleveland has also lost half a million. Baltimore has lost 350,000. Buffalo, nearly as many. New Orleans and Pittsburgh are down nearly a quarter million people. Cincinnati has lost 200,000. Newark and Milwaukee have lost about 150,000. There are ways of shaping immigration policy that could grant immigration status contingent on a willingness to reside in one of these cities for five to seven years whatever, to infuse some innovation and growth into currently declining economies. To bring Kaplan's book into the conversation, he has written really a provocative and engaging and quick read. It's illustrated by cartoonist Zach Weinersmith that makes a similar argument for much more open borders from both an ethical and an economic perspective. Kaplan makes a strong case that not only is increased immigration the right thing to do from an ethical, moral perspective to help out those in need because we can, but also that it will be a tremendous economic benefit for all concerned. 
There's a lot more to say about all of this. So many ideas in these two books for humane, pragmatic, fair immigration policies. I recommend them both as short, accessible starting points for learning more. There's articles on both of them, easily accessible if you Google them. For now, I hope that I've at least started to seed our collective imaginations about what might be possible and that significantly more open borders might be a key part of what it would take to move toward our UU6 principle, the goal of world community. As an encapsulation of what that sort of flipped perspective on immigration might look like, what it feels like, part of what I want to leave you with is a poem by Brian Bilston. It's titled Refugees. It goes like this. You can read along with me if you'd like. They have no need of our help. So do not tell me these haggard faces could belong to you or me, should life have dealt a, de dealt a different hand. We need to see them for who they really are, chancers and scroungers, layabouts and loungers with bombs up their sleeves, cutthroats and sleeves. They are not welcome here. We should make them go back to where they came from. They cannot share our food, share our homes, share our countries. Instead, let us build a wall to keep them out. It's not okay to say these people are just like us. A place should not only belong to those who are born there. Do not be so stupid to think that the world can be looked at another way. He then adds those key words at the bottom. Now read from bottom to the top and read it with me again. We're going to read from the bottom to the top of the screen. The world can be looked at another way. Do not be so stupid to think that a place should only belong to those who were born there. These people are just like us. It's not okay to say build a wall to keep them out. Instead, let us share our countries. And continuing to read from the bottom of the screen, let us share our homes, share our food. They cannot go back to where they came from. We should make them welcome here. They are not cutthroats and thieves with bombs up their sleeves, layabouts and loungers, chancers and scroungers. We need to see them for who they really are, should life have, de had, have dealt a different hand. These haggard faces could belong to you or me. So do not tell me they have no need of our help. This poem encapsulates, again, this flipped perspective that I've been inviting us to consider in regard to immigration justice. And I wonder here at the end of this poem, at the end of this sermon, if it might be a little easier for you to resonate with that line from John Lennon. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. He then continues. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And I hope someday you'll join us in the world will be as one. May it be so. And may we each do our part within our spheres of influence to help build the better world we dream about, to turn our dreams into deeds. In a few moments, we'll be invited to sing our hymn of response, We'll Build a Land. And as we do so, may we open our hearts, open our minds to widen the circle of inclusion of who do we mean when we say we, we the people. Together, let us imagine building a land that is truly for all. Let's sing together.